We're finishing up on uh, uh, Philippians verses 7 and 8 today, chapter 1. So you go ahead and turn over there. We almost finished uh, last time we were together two weeks ago, um, verses uh, 7 and 8, 1 through uh, 8 of uh, Philippians chapter 1. And yeah, I just want to remind you that he's the Apostle Paul's in prison here, and he's really going under some very uh, hard circumstances. And um, not so much from physical deprivation, but more from being withheld from ministry. I mean, this is what this man was called to do, is minister and preach the gospel, and all of a sudden he finds himself sitting in a prison with uh, restricted freedoms, even though he was allowed to minister some, we find out. But uh, for the most part, uh, he was being uh, persecuted for his faith. And uh, he was attacked by others who also named the name of Christ. And they were spreading word around him because he was in prison. They were kind of spreading rumors about him. And, and it was just a tough time for him. And I don't know if you've ever been at that point in your life where you find yourself at a difficult time. Um, we've all been there. and We'll all go there again. Um, but uh, sometimes certain circumstances bring about a, more of a hardship than others. And in spite of all this stuff he finds himself in the middle of, the Apostle Paul clearly expresses joy. Even though his circumstances are dire, even though his circumstances don't look too bright, you might say he doesn't have the best future um, by the world standard, being locked up in prison and being kept from what God has called him to do and being persecuted for his faith. And the occasion of this epistle was written while he was in prison and he received a, a, a gift from the uh, Philippian Christians through Epaphroditus, their messenger. And he came with money to assist Paul and uh, was instructed to stay there and comfort him while he was there. Um, so it wasn't just the financial help they gave him, but they also sent a person. And sometimes um, that's a good thing. That's why we like as a church to, to uh, recognize the folks who go to Mexico because it's easy to send a check to a missionary somewhere, but it's another thing to actually go there and see what goes on and partake of the ministry. And so Paul is overwhelmed here as he writes this letter by their affection, his affection for them and their affection for him. And uh, he was really, uh, he, he just really wanted to express his joy. And so he wrote this letter to them. And so it's really a letter of joy. So if, you're, if your joy tank is a little empty this morning, hopefully you can walk out of here a little fuller than what you came in. And uh, basically, in, the, in the, the short version of this letter is, hey, don't worry about me. I'm rejoicing in spite of my circumstances. That's what Paul was saying. Don't be concerned about me, because they were. But he was saying, hey, don't worry about me. I know God is going to work everything out. God is at work even though I'm locked up in here. And nothing touches, Paul was communicating, the depth that I have because of my relationship with Christ. Not even a negative circumstance. And so in a very real sense, Paul is communicating here the, uh, the joy that Christ Jesus has put in his heart. And so we want to kind of just look back at verse 3, and I want to read verses 3 through 8 for us this morning. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every remembrance of you. Always in prayer 
Every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he, that's God, has begun, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this way of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as in both my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, he says in verse 8, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, he introduces us to us here in this text to the elements of his joy, the basic, the basics of his joy. And we've gone over those in the past. But he starts off there in, in verse and he says, you know what, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And we talked a little bit about the, the joy of remembrance and how sometimes it's good to remember what God has done in our lives and think back and, and just kind of rehash that. But you know, the one thing we, we understand today, I mean, Paul was in a, a tough situation here and he had joy in his life. But I, I want to kind of just, in way of introduction today, Remind us that not only does, does Paul have joy over the Philippians, and not only does, I'm sure, the Philippians have joy over Paul's ministry and his work and his care for them, but I, I also understand that, you know what, God has joy over us. And sometimes we don't remember that, that God is in heaven rejoicing over us as his children. And sometimes... We think that, well, why would God, a holy, almighty, infinite God, take time to rejoice over somebody like me? Puny little me. Well, as we read this morning out of Luke chapter 15, Jesus gave a parable and he gave an illustration. And in verse 7 of that text, he says, I tell you in the same way that this parable of finding the lost sheep and, and all that, he says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so we find here in that, in that text in, in Luke 15 that God rejoices when someone repents before Him. Well, what does that mean? That means turning away from your own ways. Turning away from your, your sinful ways. Because we've all sinned, right? We all stand before a holy God and there's not one person in this room that could say, I am perfect. I have never thought a bad thought. I've never spoken an ill word. I'm just perfect. Because you'd be like God. And First John tells us, if you say that you have no sin, then you're a what? A liar. You call God a liar. And so it's kind of an important point to, to realize that we're all in this boat together. We all have sin in our lives. But the, the neat thing is that when one repents, when one turns from their sin and stops looking at their sin and says, you know what, I need to look to a holy God who is there with his arms open wide saying, I will forgive you. I have a free gift that I want to give to you if you acknowledge me as your Savior. You know, gifts are funny things. You stop and you think about it. When we go up there, we always load a suitcase full of gifts because we've got to spoil the grandchildren. You know, that's what it's all about. And so, you know, I bought a couple trains for Mason. He's promised the train things he likes and we get up there, and each day I kind of gave him a new train, a little, little model thing he likes. And uh, every day, you know, he'd come kind of expecting something. 
And there was one in this little collection that we didn't get. And uh, I guess after we left, he was saying that he was telling his mom, you know, where's, where's Papo and, and, and Packet, that or Mama, that's what, that's what he calls us. And uh, she said, well, they went home, remember? We, they left yesterday. Well, wait, no, they didn't, you know, we, I don't have a Gordon yet. You know, there was one missing. And he thought, hey, he demanded this. So I thought, okay, i got to get online and find this blue Gordon that he wants and send it up to him. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is gifts are something that have to be what? Received, right? It's not good enough just for him to know, oh, you know, Grandpa's going to bring me a gift. You know, when I give it to him, he could very easily say, I don't want it. Well, then it wouldn't be his gift. I'd have to give it to somebody else. And sometimes we forget that God has a gift for us in the way that his son died for our sins. He gave his son as a gift. And that's when we come together and we celebrate communion. That's what it's all about. It's not just grape juice and a cracker. It signifies the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord, the whole atonement, the purchasing of of us by God himself. And so we need to remember that. That the first thing that, that you would know that, that God rejoices over is when we repent. When we look at our sinful ways and say, you know what, I don't have my act together. I need a Savior. And look to the cross and say, Jesus, save me. Take away my sin. Because that's what He promises to do. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've earned it. Just as we sang, only by grace can we enter. It's only by the grace of God that anybody will ever be in heaven. See, somehow we get in our minds that, you know, well, the good people will be in heaven. No, the good people won't be in heaven. The people who think they're good will be in hell. (laughs) Because they're not good. They've deceived themselves. The people who will be in heaven are sinners who look to a holy God and said, you know what? I don't have my act together. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness for my sin. When they repent, they turn from their own their own way, their own way of doing things, and you turn to the cross. You turn to Christ. That's what that word means, to change your mind about something so that it, it affects your life. But it says there in Luke that there's more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So when we repent, that causes God great joy. Another thing that causes God great joy is that faith, the faith that we place in Him delights God. In, in Psalm 147, near the end of the chapter, uh, verse 11, it says, The Lord favors those who fear Him. The Lord favors those who fear Him. And so not only does, does faith, if you look in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, sorry, I skipped over that, verses 5 and 6, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. And that's the second thing that pleases God, is, is that it gives God joy, is our faith, that we're willing to take our faith and put it in Him. And it's not a blind leap in the dark. I mean, all you have to do is look around you, go outside today, a beautiful day outside, and look at creation. And if you want to believe that somehow this kind of just washed up on the shore from some sludge or whatever, go ahead. But I, I choose to believe that it took an intelligent designer to make what we see around us. And even scientists today who were sold out to evolution are looking at creation and going, you know, there's got to be more to this. It can't just be a little sludge ball that rolled up on the, on the, on the shore and decided to sprout, you know, uh, scales and, and fins and then wings and then eventually became a monkey and then eventually became a man. I mean, that's just crazy if you think about it. When you think about how intricate the human body is. There's a designer and the designer's God. So it's not a blind leap of faith. It's, it's a faith that we put in a God who's real. 
Don't think God isn't real. God is very real. And He wants to affect a real change in your life if you allow Him to do that. If you cry out to Him and repent of your sin and go to Him in faith. The third thing there is God delights basically in worship or adoration. And that's Psalm 147 I was reading. The Lord favors those who fear Him. That word fear really means to to worship Him, to have an adoration. It's not talking about a cowering fear. Oh, don't hurt me. No, it's talking about, whoa, I can't believe this is my God. An adoration kind of a fear. A fear of respect. That's, that's the, an idea of respect. That's kind of what he's, he's talking about. So how can we cause God joy by repenting from our sin, by believing in Him, by worshiping and, and adoring Him and His Son? Proverbs 15, verse 8 says, The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. In other words, all the good things people do who don't know Christ, it doesn't mean anything. It's an abomination. It's almost like it's better if they didn't even do it. But then he says this, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So how can we, how can we delight God? How can we bring joy to God? Not only by repenting of our sin, not only by believing in Him by faith and worshiping Him and adoring Him, but also by prayer. God loves it when we come to Him in prayer. Our communion with Him. I mean, think about it. If you had somebody in your family you loved very much, but you never talked to them. You know, you went down, they were sitting at the breakfast table, and you just sat down, and you never said anything. You came home from work, and they were there, and they were eager to talk to you, but you never opened your mouth. People would look at that and go, well, you have a weird relationship. You guys never talk at all? Well, sometimes that's how we treat God. We think just because we can't see Him, and physically He's not here before us, well, you know, I just don't talk to Him. That's all prayer is. Prayer is communicating with the Creator of the universe. Prayer is, is coming before a holy God and just, just pouring your heart out. It doesn't have to be the Christmas list, you know. Oh, I want this, I want that, I want this. Sometimes it's just go, go before God, open His Word, and just be quiet. Don't say anything. Say, God, speak to my heart through Your Word. Tell me what You want me to know today about You. And He'll do that. Because He's a real God and we have a real relationship with Him. And so, we bring joy to God in a lot of different ways. In, in Chronicles chapter 29, verse 17, Scripture reads this, Since I know, O my God, that Thou triest the heart and delightest in uprightness, and delightest in, in, in uprightness is what it says, and, and what, that, what that means is it's kind of a blamelessness. God takes joy in the fact that before Him we can live in a blameless way. We can have a blameless character. In Proverbs 11.20 it says, The blameless in their walk are His delight. So you want to delight God? You want to bring joy to God? Carry out those things. Matthew 25.21 says, Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's what, what he's, he's really communicating to us that we should have joy in our heart because we serve a God. We can bring joy to the heart of God by repentance, by faith, by adoration, worship, by prayer, by righteous behavior, by living a blameless life, by being faithful in our service to Him. I mean, we don't think of that often, that we can bring joy to God's heart. We always think that He's bringing joy to us. Well, we talked about in verse 3 the joy of remembrance that Paul had all these sweet memories. We talked about where he says, in every prayer, 
We talked about the joy of prayer, the joy of interceding for other people. What a joy that is. What a privilege that is to think that, you know what, I can down here in Redwood City be praying for my my uh, grandson or my granddaughter or my daughter or my, my son-in-law and affect change in their life through God, even though I'm not there. That brings joy to my heart. The joy of intercession. There's a joy of participation in verse 5. Paul reminded us. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, he was thanking the Philippians, he's thanking God for their willingness to be partakers of the ministry there. Because the ministry is never about one man. Ministry is never about just a couple, a couple men. Ministry is about a group effort. It's a team. That's why several years ago when I first came here, the history of the church, we've always seem to have committee after committee after committee. Fellowship committee, missions committee. There's nothing wrong with that. But to me, I thought, that's just too formal. Let's, let's call them ministry teams because that's what it's about. It's about a bunch of people coming together and saying, what can we affect change for in our community and for Christ, for His glory? And let's do it together as a team. That's why it's such a blessing even yesterday, Saturday morning. I mean, you know, we had a group of people come together. And we were, they were cutting and painting and doing all sorts of things for VBS. And there's joy in that. It's not, a, not so much a, a task anymore because we're coming together as a body and we're fellowshipping. The joy of fellowshipping and, and participation together. And then we talk about the, the joy of uh, anticipation in verse 6 of what we will be. And we... We shared that, you know what, if you were to look at your life today as a Christian, you may become depressed. So don't look at it. Look at what you will be. Look at what Christ promises. Look at verse 6. Very clearly, he says, being confident. In other words, I'm absolutely, positively, there's no wiggle room here in the language of this very thing. Well, what thing are you talking about, Paul? That he, that God, who has begun a work in you, See, that's, that's the key to this whole understanding, is that it's God who begins this work in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to go to God and you need to say, God, begin this work that Steve's talking about right here in verse 6. I want that work to begin in my life. I want to know you personally. But I know that left to myself, there's no way that's ever going to happen. God, I want you to work in my life. I want you to begin this process. I want you to begin this good work, he says in verse 6. And once you begin it, God, you promise right there that you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise. And I thank God I don't have to go to bed at night wondering, oh, you know, did I do good today? Because, you know, if I didn't, boy, you know, I may be hanging over the fires of hell tomorrow. I thank God that Christ paid for all my sins. Not just the ones before I was saved, not just the ones when I got saved, but He paid for the ones until... He, he comes to bring me home. My salvation is complete. That gives me joy. That joy of anticipating. And even as the church, we look at the church, sometimes, you know, you have, you know, got problems here, got problems there, whatever it might be. Don't look at what the church is today. Look at what the church will become. Because God wants us to grow. God wants us to grow closer to Him. But the last thing is the joy of affection. This is the one we didn't finish up last week or two weeks ago. He says there in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my 
change and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace. His heart is kind of just overflowing at this point. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody's telling you something, they're excited about something, and they start off, and, and by the end of the conversation, they're just, I mean, they can hardly talk. They're just so excited about something. You know, uh, I noticed a couple of Wednesday nights ago when Ken brought the picture board from Mexico back, and it was last week or whatever, and, uh, you know, he was over there talking to people about it. He was excited. That, that's me, because he was there. I was listening to Anna back there on the thing. As, as Ken was showing a slide presentation. She had been down to Mexico before. And she's going, well, that's so cool. She's just talking to herself, but or her baby or whoever was there. But, I mean, I overheard her conversation that she was having. And she was excited. Her joy was just kind of gushing out. Well, that's what, what's happening to Paul here. His, it's almost kind of like a, you know, a crescendo, just kind of building up. He starts out by rejoicing every remembrance and rejoices over the fact that he's able to help out these people through interceding prayer. And then he rejoices about their participation. And then he rejoices what they will be. And then he caps it all off and he says, the sum of it all is this. I have you so deeply in my heart. I care so earnestly about you, Philippians, that my, my, my joy is, is compelled by my deep love for you. You notice there in verse 7, he says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart due to what you've done for me. Um, He's saying, because you have been so uh, good to me, you have found a, a deep place in my heart. And it's only right, he says, for me to feel this way. It's only the right thing to do. That word right, it's more than just what's expected. It's more than just a protocol. You know, sometimes, you know, we do the, the right thing, right? Have you ever been at a, a Christmas celebration and somebody gives you a gift and you're looking at this gift, what am I going to do with this thing, you know? But what do you do? You do the right thing? Thank you very much. Oh, I love it. You know, next garage sale is out on the lawn, you know. But you do the right thing. Well, it's, it's different here. It's not talking about just doing the proper thing. It, 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 it's, it's right. It's morally right. It's right before God. It honors God. It expresses gratitude. That's what he's saying. It's the way that he ought to respond. And Paul had a great sense of what was right. He was, he was really compelled to live a right life before God, as we all should be. And he doesn't claim some you know, prize for his affection for them. He doesn't expect some payment back from them. He's not self-serving or even condescending. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because of all you've done. I'm only doing what is right, is what Paul is saying. And there's even humility in that expression. He says, to feel this way. Because I have you in my heart. It's only right for me to think this of you all. To feel thankful, verse verse 3. What way is he talking about? Well, to feel joyful, verse 3. To feel confident, in verse 4 he says. Verse 6 he says, it's the right way to feel what I feel about you. Well, what does he mean about here? Feel, well, my translations in New King James says think. That's the same word. Some translations translate that feel. It's only right for me to feel this way 
about you, but it really means to think. It's an attitude. It's not just a superficial feeling that he's having. It runs deeper than that. And he uses this word quite a bit. He uses it twice in chapter 2. He uses it twice in chapter 3, uh, verse 15. He uses it once in chapter 3, verse 19. 4.2, he uses it in 4.10. He likes the word. And it expresses the, the hard attitude that he has, that concern that he has. And that's really what he's saying. It's, it's an action of his intellect that touches his feelings. So just as it's right for me to think or feel this way of you all, he says, I have you in as much as uh, because I have you in my heart. You can just kind of sense the, the deep affection there that he has for them. I think that, that somehow when, when he's talking here about his his, his heart. Um, the heart is, is simply the, the center of, of thought and feeling. What does he mean by that, that word heart? Um, in Proverbs 4.23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the, uh, the springs of life. And there's there's different scriptures that lead us to believe they, they use the heart to believe in Acts 6.37. You can look that up. I, I think I wrote those verses down there for you. We use the heart in service in Deuteronomy 11.13. We use the heart to obey in Deuteronomy 26.16. We use the heart to follow. We use the heart to trust. Trust the Lord with all your heart, it says. We use the heart to love. Love the Lord your God, what? With all your heart. We use the heart even to do God's will. Doing the will of God from the heart, Ephesians says. We use the heart to worship when we sing praises to Him. It's the center of our being. It's our action. It's our thought. It's our feeling. It's all those things combined. That's why the Bible says in 51.10 that we need a clean heart. We're to have an obedient heart. We're to have a worshiping heart. The heart is the, the depth of who you are, you might say. And every time they came to mind, his heart was filled with joy and affection for them. It wasn't because they were perfect, because they had their problems too. We all do. But like I said previously, he looked at what they were going to become, not necessarily at what they are. Now it's interesting, at the end of verse 7, he says, I have this affection for you, this love for you, inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's saying there, you in, in my imprisonment and the defense, it's, it's the word apology, we're giving a defense for the faith, and confirmation, it means that has the idea of guaranteeing something. And both are, are really, in the Greek, they're legal terms that they use in, in a court of law. And so, he's saying, in my imprisonment and in my defense, you were there standing with me as I stood for the gospel. Whether in my imprisonment, arraigned before the judges, you were partakers of the grace for me. His imprisonment is very clear in this text. 
Now, he says that they were partakers with him of grace. And I think that's kind of an important important part. You know, you don't get saved by somebody else. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't. You're not going to get saved by your parents because your parents are saved. You're not going to get saved because maybe your spouse is saved. You know, you don't ride into heaven on the coattails of anybody. You're going to stand before God one day, and you're going to be accountable before a holy God what what you've done with your life and, and what you've done with the sin that's in your life. And only one answer is going to gain you access to heaven. Only one answer in that circumstance. It's not going to matter what you did. You can start, you know, well, let's see, you know, back in, in, in 2003, I helped out an orphanage down in Mexico, and then 2004, I gave some money to this minister. And God's going to say, I don't care about that. What do you do with my son? Who is my son to you? Is he related to you? Do you know him personally? Have you experienced the forgiveness that my son offered you? Because that's the only way that anybody ever gains access to the Father. Clearly, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was raised in a faith that said, well, you know, you go to this person who's, who dresses in a robe and you go into this little box and they raise this little thing and you say, you know, Father, forgive me for it's been so long since my last confession. And then you list off a bunch of stuff and then he tells you what to do. And so you go out and you kneel on the rail and you pray the, the uh, Hail Mary or Lord's Prayer, whatever he tells you. And then somehow that, that gets you to God. It doesn't. I mean, that's not biblical. The Bible doesn't say to do that. The Bible says very clearly, you know what? If you want access to me, the Father, you have to come through the Son. And a lot of people have problems with that. A lot of people say, that seems so restrictive. seems too you know, narrow. That's exactly what Jesus said. He said the, the, the way to life, the way to, to God is a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. It's not a broad gate. He said the broad gate leads to destruction. The broad gate leads to hell. And we don't have to, you know, look around too much today in our society to see that they're going there by the bucket full. You know, they're just going there. And they don't even care. So they seem. But Jesus Christ, God wants us to understand that the only way to Him is through His Son. And so when Paul here in verse 7 says that you are partakers with me of grace. That's very important. That we're partakers of God's grace personally. You know, just because I'm saved doesn't mean my wife is saved. She is. Don't get me wrong. But if she was saved, doesn't mean I was saved. We're all personally accountable before God. And I think that it's just so so interesting when he, he says to him, this is the affection that I have for you. This is, this is the way I feel about you because of all these things that we talked about. Verse 8, for God is my witness. He's not answering to them. He's not answering to anybody. There's one person you're going to answer to at the end of your life, and that's to God. Does it matter what other people think? Sure it does. But not as much as what God thinks. And that's what Paul says in verse 8. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. You know, that that word affection, um, 
really, if you have a King James version, it, it may say something to do with the bowels. Because that's what that word means. Um, it, it has the idea of, of kind of referring to the soft internal organs. Remember when you were in grade school and first time maybe you thought you fell in love? And that you know, squiggly little feeling you got and maybe you held that girl's hand for the first time. Well, that's what he's talking about. And it doesn't, you know, you don't get that feeling in your ear or your toe or whatever. You get it what? Right here in your stomach. What do we call it? We call it butterflies, right? That's what we call it. You get nervous. Well, where do you feel it? Right here. It's not like, oh, man, my arm's just twitching. I'm so nervous. That doesn't happen. You get it down here in your stomach. That's why people have stomach problems, right? They get nervous and things aren't going the right way. Well, they get ulcers and all sorts of things. It affects their internal organs. Well, that's what he's talking about here. That word affection means kind of the same thing, that, that Paul is getting so excited about this that he's getting butterflies over this, thinking about them. And it really means the, the area of the bowels. So the next time you single people are out on a date and you feel some affection coming on for the women you're with, just turn to her and say, I love you with my bowels. See what kind of response you get. It's a biblical thing to say that, but people aren't going to understand it, trust me. Got to put that on the next Hallmark card. That'd be a good one. But I think that it's it, it's so neat that Paul shares that that he's not trying to you know that's that's the the joy of affection. That's the last thing here that we see is that he has this affection of Jesus Christ. And so if you, you sum this all up. The fellowship of God's people should be a fellowship of of joy. Definitely a fellowship of joy. And and sometimes. When we we think about we think about joy as a Christian, joy comes from Christ. That's that's the only way we can ever get joy into our life uh, is is through Jesus Christ. We can't manufacture joy. We can manufacture happiness. You know, we go you know people give us stuff or we go buy stuff that we like. Well, that gives us happiness. But what happens when that stuff's rusty and old and it's thrown away? Well, then the happiness is gone with it. See, today the problem is people don't understand. They're looking for joy, but they're really substituting happiness. And so they're they're kind of kind of grabbing it, whatever they can to to find fulfillment in this life. And the Bible says very clearly, the only way you're going to do that is through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What can steal away our joy? You know, I've, I've written some things down there. What causes the absence of joy? First of all, false salvation. What do you mean by that? You know, there's some people who seek joy, but you know what? They're not going to find it. They're looking in the wrong place. Uh, their lives aren't happy. They're, they're internally, you might say, frustrated. Um, and, and the reason is they're think, seeking this joy without the power of the Holy Spirit, without, without Christ in their life. They've been deceived. I mean, for 19 years I was deceived. I thought I was a Christian. Went to church and everything. Went to altar boards and the whole nine yards. You know what? God had to show me that's not, that's not a, a, a true Christian. A true Christian is not somebody who just says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian with their mouth. A true Christian is someone who, who not only says it with their mouth, but their lives depict it. Their lives represent the life of Christ. And the only way that can happen is if Christ comes into your life and transforms you, the Bible says, into a new creation. And so a lot of people are, are, are frustrated. They're, they're walking around thinking they're a believer and they're not, and they're trying to do everything that believers do, and they get angry and they get frustrated because they can't do it. Second Corinthians 
says very clearly that we should examine ourselves to see if you're in the faith. See, on the one hand, we have eternal security. I know without a doubt that I'm saved. I know without a doubt. Not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is. But on the other hand, you know what? I don't take that just, you know, I'm saved, I'll just go do whatever I want. No, I'm continually examining myself. Is this something Christ would do? Is this something Christ would want? Is this a desire that would be Christ-like? I'm examining myself to make sure that I have the faith. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not doubting your salvation. That's just making sure. But there's some people, I think, that never examine it so they never realize that it's not there. Secondly, Satan and the demons do everything possible to steal your joy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the one thing that he wants to cause Christians is a lack of joy. Because if you have a lack of joy in your life, if you just have a, if you're just filled with depression every day as a believer, you know what? You're not going to be useful. You're not going to feel useful. You're not going to want to be useful. You're not going to want to minister to anybody. And basically it's like taking a, a great player and, and sticking them in the penalty box and saying, you know what? You're a great player. You're a Christian, but you know you're not going to play anymore. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to... He can't take us off God's team, but he can put us in the penalty box sometimes. And, and, you know, we shouldn't have any of that. We should be aware of that. Thirdly, Christians specifically, uh, you know, Satan obviously is a thief of joy, but I think one of the things that, that tends to steal our joy is an inadequate, inadequate understanding of the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we, we forget that God is in control of the things we see around us, even though... Sometimes it may not look that way. And sometimes things don't work out the way we want them to. And if we have an inadequate understanding of the sovereignty of God, what that means is that God is in control and we're not because He's God and we're not. That means if tomorrow morning I get up and I'm driving over to get coffee and my car blows up, I can handle that one of two ways. Immediately, I can get angry and say, oh, how am I going to get my wife to work now? You know, my whole day's blown. I don't have the money to fix this. And I can just create a... A big mess for myself. Or I can sit there in my broken down car on up the street and say, okay, God, what next? You know, you could have prevented this, but you didn't. For some reason, there's some reason why this is happening. And you can embrace it. That's a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God. It's not crying out to God, how long? Please, how long? You know, No, it's saying, give me the wisdom to understand the circumstances I'm dealing with. Fourthly, just quickly, prayerlessness steals our joy when we're not praying as we should be. Sometimes even one of the things that tends to steal our joy is, a, is if you've gone away, say you went to Mexico and worked on a trip, or say you went to a conference and you come back off a spiritual high, and you're just, you know, you were just maybe at a retreat or something, and you come back, and as soon as you come back, what happens? You fall right back into everything. You just get depressed. That can steal our joy. You know, you don't have to go too far in the, the Bible to look at that. Look at Elijah. <laughs> I mean, on Mount Carmel, man, you know, he defeats 450 priests of Baal, the heathen of the day. God just, boom, wipes them out. And then a little later on, you know, he's just whining. Oh, I'm so depressed. I think I'll just kill myself. I mean, it, it, it's, it's crazy that that's how our life cycles through. Another thing, if we're focused on our circumstances and not on the God we serve, that can steal our joy. 
Maybe you're sitting here today and say, you know what? You know, my husband doesn't treat me the way he should. I can steal your joy. The kids don't do the way things they should. I can steal your joy. Wish I could have this, this, and this. I can steal your joy. All those things. It's a lack of focus on God. When we focus on God and we focus on His provision and we focus on the fact that, you know what, He began a work in us and He will complete it, then our joy is in place. Because all of a sudden, all the other things just kind of fade away. And ingratitude steals our joy. There's nothing worse than an ungracious child, somebody who just has no gratitude for anything. Forgetfulness. There's a list there. You can read through those. But I mean, the, the main point is, is basically that Paul had so much joy in his heart. Not just because of who the Philippians were and what they did for him, but who his God was. Because he knew him personally. And I'm here to tell you today that, you know what? I would not be up here doing this. I would not be ministering at all if I did not know in my heart of hearts that this is real. This is not something that you can create. It's something that God comes into your life and He transforms you. He makes you a person that you thought you could never be. And He forgives you of all the inadequacies and all the sins that you bring to Him. And He does it freely. He doesn't sit there with a calculator saying, oh, another sin? Okay, that's going to cost you. You know, uh, it just doesn't work that way. It's not like those fancy restaurants. If you've ever been to a real fancy restaurant, you know, you look at the menu and you're like, oh, steak, oh, 30 bucks. Well, that's cool. And you order the steak potato and that's another 15 bucks. And you're like, whoa, what's wrong with this picture? You know, what are we, what are we thinking here? God doesn't work that way. Okay? He's, he's, it's a blanket forgiveness when we come to Christ. And the Bible says the only way we can do that is by faith. By grace. Through faith. Not of works of righteousness that we do. But it's works that He did on the cross. And He did it for me. He did it for you. He did it for everyone. But who's going to reach out and say, you know what, I want that. I want that personal walk with Him. Let's close the word of prayer and I want to ask the men, Joe and Ken, to come forward and we're going to have our communion time after our prayer. Lord, we thank You for this time this morning. Lord, we pray that You would uh, touch each heart here. Lord, we thank You for the example of Paul. And in spite of his circumstances, in spite of all that what that went around him, Lord, uh, the hardship that he endured. I mean, he was not in the... You know, the, the hotel there. He was imprisoned. And his freedoms were restricted. Lord, we, we tend to forget that because we read the pages of his letter and it seems he's so filled with joy. He's just overflowing. I pray that if we find ourselves in circumstances today that are just too hard for us to handle, maybe the, the weight of a relationship or the weight of finances or the weight of a job is just crushing down on us, Lord, I pray that we would turn to You. That we would turn to Jesus the Savior. He says He'll take that load, that burden off us. And we can lay it at His feet. He's the one who created us. He knows us best. He knows everything there is to know about us. And Lord, we thank You 
that you desire to have that intimate, personal relationship with us. It's not about a religion. It's not even about a church. It's about a relationship. It's the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Father, we thank You that You made it possible through Your Son, Jesus Christ, for us to have that. If there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know You, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to You. That even now, in the quietness of their heart, Lord, that You would draw them to Yourself. That You would clearly show them their need of a Savior. And Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.